On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. It has since been taken offline by Open Stories, but you can now find an archive of all 15 episodes on chrisway.com slash O-T-O-S or on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. On the Other Side was a podcast project dedicated to discussing religious, post-religious, and religion-adjacent issues from a distinctly millennial perspective. Hello, and welcome to our podcast, On the Other Side, Millennials and Religion. We have a few announcements to begin. So this is the latest podcast under the Open Stories Foundation umbrella. And this particular podcast is meant to service the generation known as millennials, aka Generation Y, aka Echo Boomers, aka Generational Demographic Cohort Following Generation X. (laughs) We want to talk about all things Mormon and all things religion from the perspective of the millennial generation, from the historicity of Mormonism and Christianity and religions around the world to people's personal experiences with religion, to value changes after religion, we want to talk about it all. We especially want to be a support for millennials experiencing a faith crisis or faith transition. We currently have three full-time hosts, Blake Wright, Chris Way, and me, Michelle Ross. Okay, let's get started. Blake, Chris, and I all grew up Mormon and are all still on the Mormon books, but our views on Mormonism and religion have changed, and each of us have gone through a faith crisis or faith transition of varying degrees, varying levels. So we wanted to start by telling our stories and um, giving you an idea of our experiences with Mormonism and with religion. So let's start with our childhoods. and let's start with Blake. Blake, what was your childhood like in the church? Um, hi, I'm Blake, and <laughs> I grew up in the church. My my adolescent years were uh, rigidly orthodox. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We're not at adolescent years yet. <laughs> my, my baby years, my baby years. I was born <laughs> in the church, raised in the church. Your childhood, your childhood. <laughs> my childhood. Born in the church, raised in the church. Well, what was that like for you, Blake? Um, I think I really loved it, actually. Uh, I was good at it. I loved one another and I um, exercised that love every chance I could. And um, yeah, I think I was good. I remember one time I broke out of my house and to go throw snowballs at cars with my friends. And I remember feeling really bad about it. And I was certain that the spirit was telling me that that was just not right to do. Looking back, I knew I was kind of like scared of the uh, emotional whooping my parents would give me when they found out. But yeah, I was super orthodox growing up. Cool. What about you, Chris? Uh, yeah, I was I was raised in the church as well. My parents were both converts, so um, the dynamic there was that I always kind of understood on a on a like a subconscious level at least that they um, understood the church from from an outside perspective, or they knew what it looked like on the outside looking in. And, and you, uh, they were converts before you were born. Right. Yeah. So they okay. both converted when they were in their twenties. Uh, they both met at BYU. Actually, um, they just kind of like by happenstance ended up at BYU. Both as non-members, uh, non-students. It's like a kind of like if you were a Mormon, it would it would sound like this 
providential, you know, like um, God's hand kind of story. And uh, it was really, it's sort of extraordinary that they kind of just happened to both be there and run into the church and run into each other. Um, and I and I think growing up, the idea of that narrative was that the church kind of saved their lives and brought them together and like kind of brought our family into existence, which is true. Um, and, you know, like that, yeah. the church, the church also, um, has a bit to do with my origin story. Like even from like day one, like as an, as an infant, I was born 12 weeks early, 12 weeks premature. And in the eighties, that's like pretty dangerous. I mean, it's still dangerous to be born that premature. And, uh, it, I was like three pounds or something in an incubator oh, wow. and, uh, my, my dad gave me a priesthood blessing. And obviously I don't remember this cause I was an infant, but, um, from the story, the, from the way that that story is told, it's like um, a deeply spiritual kind of origin story that I have, I guess, with the Mormon Church. And this, there's this sense in which, um, you know, my dad's connection to priesthood or to ritual or to that sanctity of some kind of um, numinous experience that he had, or or uh, this belief system or this trust or this faith that he had. Um, like literally saved my life from day one. So uh, growing up as a kid and hearing that story told to me in, in kind of hushed tones um, set the stage for like Mormonism is very important to us. It's not important to our extended family. They don't believe, but we love them and they love us. And, but for us and our core, like nuclear family, it was, it was a huge part of our lives. So I grew up uh, definitely Orthodox, definitely believing, attending, uh, definitely into it. So I, um, I kind of had an interesting experience as a child because my so three of my grandparents are actually converts. Um, my grandfather met my grandmother in Germany. They were both in the army, both in the army in Germany, and um, my I grandmother. Think the army in Germany is called the Armini. <laughs> yeah, they were in the Armini. <laughs> Everyone knows what Armini is. So um, my grandmother was not LDS, and my grandfather saw her and said it was like love at first sight. And um, he he was very orthodox, but he I don't know. It's so it's so interesting because now I feel like most Mormons are very very like you don't marry somebody who's not Mormon. If you want to be you want to get married in the temple, you want an eternal family. Like that doesn't even cross your mind. And so my grandfather, who was ended up being you know high levels of leadership and was a patriarch when he passed away. Um, he married this non-Mormon and it's, it's kind of fascinating. So mm. I think that they had four children or, Oh no, I think, I think my grandmother did get baptized and then they had four kids and then they got sealed in the temple. Um, my dad is actually also a convert. My grandparents and my dad Um, they were all baptized as a family. Actually, they're like the golden family that was found and baptized. And and it was kind of that situation that Chris's parents had where the church kind of saved their lives. You know, it, it really, they had kind of a troubled, you know, both my grandparents had had troubled lives and the church brought so much meaning and purpose to them. My dad was baptized when he was 15 and I think he was pretty orthodox from then on. But um, and my, my mom, you know, was, was religious. I think she always kind of had a rebellious spirit about her, but they got married, had some kids. And, um, when I was eight years old, they actually left the church and my mom was definitely the instigator. My dad kind of followed suit. And, um, we, I don't know, like as an eight year old, 
I wouldn't think that it would even occur to me to keep going. You know, like when you look at eight year olds, you're like, how they can't make decisions like that. But I never stopped going. I, you know, my parents would drop me off. I would go, my siblings would come sometimes. Um, but yeah, from a, from a very young age, I felt this purpose, right? I felt like I had a purpose in the church. I had structure and stability and meaning, and it always um, was very important to me from a very young age. Did, so was that like a sense of duty or what, like what was going on? No, not at all. I mean, neither of my parents were going to church anymore. Um, I don't, I don't honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. Like I, I remember my sister actually asking me that question. Like she was like, what, what, like, what about the church was so mean? Drawing you in. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I was eight, you know, I was eight, <laughs> nine, 10, 11. And I was going to church by myself. I remember one of my best friends in the neighborhood, she and I would go and sometimes we wouldn't go to the classes because we didn't really know anyone, but we would sit in the gym behind these like dividers and sing hymns together. I I don't know. There was just something about the church and being at the church that just spoke to you. There's no place like home. Yeah. Yeah. So so what happened next? Well, what I wanted happened? to talk to you about when, do, when were your grandparents married? Uh, I so asked because um, in the original Doctrine and Covenants Book of Commandments, section 101 said, if you find somebody outside the church, we still promote that. Just get married anyway. There's nothing more important than love, yada, yada. And then, then it changed. I, I believe it was as late as like 1981 that they changed it. Maybe it was the 1920 edition, but. So maybe it was like less expected at that time. They got married in the late forties because my aunt. Oh, yeah. So no, they must've gotten married in like 1950 or something, 1950 or 1951. Okay. Um, But yeah, maybe just at that time, it wasn't as expected. Now it's like, you don't get married outside the temple. Yeah. And culturally, I'm sure it was a stigma since the early days, you know, yeah. Maybe your fifth wife didn't have to be a member, but <laughs> this first four. Yeah. Um well, okay, so so you guys all were active. You were both active as teenagers as well, right? Right. Right. So what was that like? Like your teenage years, your adolescence? Um well for me it was like uh I felt almost like a defender of the faith and actually in my patriarchal blessing, which for our non-member listeners is, is kind of this like um, extended horoscope essentially that you get. It's personalized. <laughs> it's personalized like a, a ritualistic blessing that describes to you spiritual traits and gifts that you have and, and kind of what you're uh, what you should be aiming for in life in, in kind of general um, terms, which is why I use the word horoscope, which now I'm realizing is probably sounds condescending, but um, <laughs> in my patriarchal blessing that aside, uh, it, it mentions that, um, that I would like use my knowledge of the scriptures and of doctrine to be a good defender of the faith. And I took that to heart. And for uh, I got that when I was like 14. So throughout most of my adolescence and teenage years, I considered it my calling in a way to like. You got it at 14? Um, yeah, I think Isn't so. Isn't that like exceptionally young to get a patriarchal blessing? Um, I don't know. I Like I think, uh, I think I got it at 14. I can double check, but I'm pretty sure. Um, Where'd you grow up? In Virginia, near DC. Okay. So you weren't surrounded by Mormons? 
by members? Right. I was surrounded by um, mostly non-members. Um, and I had a lot of conversations about religion with friends at school, um, in high school. And I remember, um, yeah, I remember often like coming across uh, what we would call at the time anti-Mormon propaganda, you know, which, which in retrospect, some of it was kind of propagandic and others, uh, other aspects of it was just, you know, facts or history that was kind of troubling or doctrinal inconsistencies that were just kind of on the surface. But some, a lot of it was framed, to be fair, in ways that seemed um, like intended to be a dig at the church. And I remember coming across a lot of that literature for my friends who got it from their pastor, you know, they're like, Hey, my pastor said this, or my mom is a pastor. And she said that you guys aren't real Christians. And, you know, she gave me all this, all this uh, material to show you. And so uh, from a pretty young age, I remember seeing a lot of that material and um, feeling like it was my duty to like understand my faith really critically and really uh, in a thorough, thoughtful kind of way, but not for any um, necessarily like nuanced kind of um, liberal Mormon type type framing that I would use later in my life. But at that time in my life, it was more just a means to an end. Like I needed to understand it critically so that I could defend it so that I could defend even the, like even to a fundamentalist, like kind of zealous um, degree, defend it to its critics uh, from the outside. So and that's what you were thinking, like as a teenager, that's yeah, that was kind of my perspective. And I, and I, you know, that makes me sound like I was this, um, really overzealous, like Peter Priestody kind of guy, which I, which I actually wasn't. It was strange. Like I was trying to be the cool guy and I like watched R rated movies sometimes. And I was like, <laughs> Oh, I'll curse with my friends. And all. I'm like the cool Mormon. I'm not like the square Mormons, but I was also trying to be like, um, the defender of the faith. So I was, it, it was an, it was an interesting position that I kind of like created for myself where I, I saw myself as, the the Mormon who could help the rest of the world see that we're all normal, we're all cool, and I am not only cool, but like smart, and I understand my religion, and you can't like Bible bash me into submission because I understand the verses. So that was kind of, uh, I was one of those. <laughs> That's interesting. Blake, where did you grow up? Born and raised in the home of the brave, Salt Lake, you know, it's right Salt here Lake in Mormon City. Kingdom. Me too. What? Yeah. So what was that like for you as a teenager? Because I know it's like a different world in Utah, you know, growing up in Utah, then growing up outside of Utah as, you know, a member of, of the church. Um, I resonated a lot with what uh, Chris was talking about there. I think for me, um, more, more or different than trying to defend the faith and, you know, learning all the anti stuff to defend it. I think uh, I've never been particularly smart, but I've always really admired smart people. And so I just would like to hear what the smartest among us had to say about uh, doctrine, theology, and history. And um, Like as a teenager? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's hard because my transition has been so slow. It's hard to like impose a particular date on how I felt about certain things. But I know from a very young age, just intelligence really like meant a lot to me. Who were you reading? Like, were you reading like Hugh Nibley and Neil Maxwell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, as a teenager? I don't well, even think I knew who those people were. <laughs> I, I, love <laughs> like to, la la land. I love to say to I love to tell a story about how a lot of teenage boys get in trouble for reading Playboys. Uh, <laughs> I I got in trouble for reading the Journal of Discourse when I was a teenager. So, um, which at own, times is just as scandalous as Playboy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, a little different type of graphic sometimes, but um, so. 
when I, I remember a couple instances growing up, I had one friend who I went to her home and asked if she was there and her mom said, no, but come in anyway. I want to talk to you. And she sat me down and said, Hey, I, I really appreciate you being friends with my daughter. You know, nobody else around here befriends her. And that was my first, like, wait, what are you talking about? Why? You know, cause, cause I, I was LDS and her daughter wasn't. And she just got the impression that the LDS kids in the neighborhood wouldn't fraternize with her children. Um, so that was interesting growing up. And then I, like Chris though, I felt like a huge zealot. I, uh, I remember reading in DNC where Joseph Smith declares that South Carolina is going to secede from the union if we don't get our act together. And I was just like, what a prophet, you know, only a prophet would know that what the church must be true. And so I definitely felt that, that very strong confirmation that the church was just hundred percent true. Um, but I think that I also thought there was more to it. Like the church was um, maybe progressing towards godliness and it was the closest thing to it at the time. And that's how I would describe it now. But it's, again, it's hard to, it, to impose that now. You may not have had that vocabulary then. Yeah. But you had yeah. that in mind. Yeah. And if you did, that's very impressive. Because when I was a teenager, I was only thinking about hanging out with my friends and going to school dances. And, you know, like, however, <laughs> that being said, I was still going to church. So... Um, my parents actually, they separated when I was like 13. And I think almost immediately my dad went back to church. So I think my dad had always, my dad is like, he's like that person that is, uh, he's a rule follower. Like he does really well, or he, I don't know, there's something about things like rules and structure and stability that draws him in. And I think I had those same characteristics. Like I was a rule follower. I liked having rules to follow, mm. you know, cause I did it well. And so, um, my dad went back to church and, um, I think I would go with him sometimes, but I still think I just went to my neighborhood ward with, uh, my neighbors with friends or whoever, And, um, even though I lived with my mom, all my siblings had stopped going, uh, or my two older siblings had stopped going. My little brother still went with my dad, but I just kept going. It it really spoke to me all through high school. It wasn't until, so my mom remarried right before my senior year of high school and we moved into his house. So it was a new neighborhood and I didn't know how to go to church. I had, I had lived in the same house for, since I had been like eight. So I'd been going to this ward where I knew people. I had a lot of friends. And so suddenly I live in this new neighborhood. I'm a child. I'm a teenager. And I don't know how to go to a new ward by myself. And um, I think what happened was his, I think I kind of wasn't going a ton. And then um, his, my stepdad's, son and daughter-in-law moved into the basement and they went to church. And so I would go with them. And then the Bishop, I remember meeting with the Bishop and the Bishop was like, Oh my goodness. I, I have a calling for you. It was like the minute he saw me, he was like, I have a calling for you. I want you to be the um, single adult rep in our ward. And that got me involved in the ward immediately. It was like, And I remember thanking him years later, I sent him an email and I was just like, thank you so much. Thank you for being an inspired bishop. You know, I felt like it was really a call 
from from God. And I, I mean, if nothing else, it was actually really a blessing for me at that time. And so I was able to kind of get involved in the ward and meet some people before I started going to a singles ward. Cool. I have a question before we move on from like adolescence and teenage and stuff. Um, It sounds like the three of us have talked a bit about uh, the structural and like social and intellectual connections that we had to Mormonism through our teenage years. And I'm wondering uh, what like the spiritual or like kind of deep, like introspective aspects of the religion was like, how was that? How are we interacting with that as teenagers? I'm just curious what, what that was yeah. like. Yeah, honestly, for me as a teenager, like as a junior high, high school age teenager, yeah, I don't even think that was, I don't even think I knew what that meant. Like for mm. me, the church was not, it was not meaningful to me necessarily because of the feelings I had. It was actually really like the structure and stability and rules and guidance that it gave me. Yeah. That's like what draw me, drew me in. I don't think I had a truly strong spiritual experience until I was um, 19. Actually. Oh, what was that? So when I was, um, so after high school, I actually, I kind of had like a few years where I, I wasn't like in a structured phase of my life. Like I actually went up to Utah state right after high school. And then I was up there for one week and was like, this is not for me. And I quit (laughs) and I moved home and I, I just wanted to have adventures. I was like, I just want to have adventures and I want to go places. And so the next year I actually moved up to Oregon. So right before I turned 19, I moved up to Oregon to live with my mom's sister. So my aunt, uncle, and cousins. And, um, I, when I was living with them, they were very LDS, um, just the best people in the world. So kind. Their home was just like peaceful and calm and wonderful. And I, it was like, and my aunt was so spiritual and she would, tell we would talk about spiritual things and it was during that time that I really became spiritual and I it just it just spoke to me and I realized you know I remember writing my journal and feeling the spirit and feeling all these things coming coming over me as I wrote in my journal and as I read the scriptures and and then I moved home I moved home after like four months and I broke up with somebody as soon as I moved home. He and I had been dating long distance. And when I got back to Utah, we broke up. That was like the first time. After the long distance? He broke up with me. Oh, okay. I was going to say you made that poor bastard wait that whole time. (laughs) No, (laughs) he made, he broke up with me. So it kind of got rocky like a couple weeks before I moved home. And um, I was way too, I was not in a position to be in a relationship of any kind, but nonetheless, I still really cared about him and I didn't want to break up. And he, uh, broke up with me and I was heartbroken. That was probably the first time I've ever felt such like heartbreak, you know, like it was true. He was like the first person I had ever loved. I wouldn't say I was in love with him, but I loved him. Like I had known him since high school. I cared so much about him. I felt like he had kind of helped me, helped me through some hard times and to lose him was really heartbreaking and sad for me. And so I went through these weeks and months of 
just really difficult sadness. And I became so spiritual during that time. Like I read the scriptures, I wrote in my journal, I was constantly, you know, just like on my knees praying for help, for guidance, for comfort. And, um, I got it. I felt it all the time, you know, and it was, it was a really powerful, and it was actually during that time that I was like, I know I'm going to serve a mission. Like I want everybody to feel what I'm feeling right now. So what about you guys? What were your like later teens like? into adulthood my my transition was just so slow that it's hard to like categorize them by from like 8 to 10 and 10 to 12 that thing so I'm just gonna like expand it a bit but so my uncle he was excommunicated in 94 and he was similar to like the September 6 and 93 where people were learning a lot more under the uh historian Leonard Arrington and his uh his regime and so people were getting excommunicated left and right for really just scholarly work my uncle was one of them. And I remember asking my dad, like, Hey, how come he got excommunicated? All he was reading the wrong stuff. And I mean, by the time I was really considering that I had to be like 13 or 14, but I was thinking how in the world can you get in trouble for learning? Like we're on an internal progression, but we're getting in trouble for learning. Um, so I had a really hard time internalizing that kind of that kind of cognitive dissonance again, I'm just a baby. So I'm not thinking about it like this, but that's the words I'm using now. Um, my grandpa died when I was like 12 or 13, right around the same time where I was having these questions and he was Greek Orthodox. And so I'm thinking that he needs to have his work done for him. So I think that kind of drove me into a more spiritual path, uh, unconsciously where I just knew I needed to do his work for him. And so, which I did eventually, but I had that kind of experience, like anchor me to the church, but I was never pulling away. And if anybody tried to pull me away, in fact, I, I would uh, batten down the hatches even harder, I think. Um, so yeah. And then, and then. So I just to, sorry, just, I don't mean to interrupt, but just to clarify for some of our listeners might not know when you say work done, you're talking about temple work, right? Like doing yeah, ordin- ordinances so, like in his name, right? because he was Greek Orthodox and such a wonderful human being, he was still probably not going um, to the same heaven that I was going to because he didn't have these sacred ordinances done for him. Um, and we we're allowed the opportunity to do that for the deceased. Um, so if somebody is a good person, they didn't get their work done in the temple, then we can posthumously, well, we can do their work for them posthumously. Yeah. I keep saying uh, posthumously. And I think that, I'm going to be dead when I do it. No, they're dead. I'm doing the work for them while I'm alive. Yeah, vicarious in, in their name, on their yeah, behalf. Exactly. Like, is that something that you felt like, did, was that a, um, I don't know, what was that experience like? Did you feel like the sense of, of uh, like a weight off your shoulders when you did that work? Or I don't know, tell me what, like, what So was that like? I didn't do any baptisms for the dead until I was able to do like endowments and stuff like that. Um, so I was like 18, I think, 19. And so going into the temple for the first time, like I was, I mean, everybody has the, oh my gosh, what is this place moment? Yeah. Uh, but I had the whole kit and caboodle. Some people have at least been in there and, and seen the, the font and at least t- dipped their water, dipped their toes in the metaphorical temple. Um, but yeah, 
so going in there, it was so, so strange to me, but the, the spiritual experience I had outweighed that so much strong, more strongly that, um, I think I categorized that weird stuff as like all this fun stuff that I get to learn about that I just don't understand now. Um, because I did do work for my grandpa. I was getting ready for my mission. Um, so it was just a really, uh, even though it was confusing me, it was super spiritual and I really internalized that. And that, that carried me on my spiritually for years after that years. That's so interesting because my experience with the temple was not like that at all. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, cause I, you know, served a mission. And so I went through the temple a few months before I left and it was, I, you know, I had it, it. So the temple for those who may not know is very ritualistic. Like there's a lot of rituals that go on that are not done out, you know, in, in the normal, the normal day-to-day religion at yeah, all. It's They're much, it's much more like abstract and metaphorical than normal Mormon practice. It's like, it's a very different style. Yes. Yeah. And just very ritualistic, which it's, even though there's rituals in like day-to-day church life or even at church, it's very different. It's, you know, it's anyway, like, it, yeah. Anyway. So I, when I went, I was quite traumatized. <laughs> I just remember like, you know, feeling like I, I didn't under, well, first of all, the initiatories, when I went through, um, the initiatories there, you know, I actually, I'm not going to go into the details, um, because it is something that's sacred to a lot of people. But, um, for me, it was, it was really hard to, um, to understand. And I, I really didn't want to go back for a long time. And I I only went back and did certain parts for years until some changes were made. And then I felt comfortable doing some other things, but um, yeah, it was, it's very different. It's very, it was challenging. I didn't, I didn't feel like I had a spiritual experience there at all, but over time I grew to really feel the spirit there and it was a place of peace for me and, and comfort. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I had that spiritual experience and I think I was just overwhelmed with all the confusing stuff that nothing, no, nothing immediately took me by too much surprise. Um, it's just so much overload. Yeah, I think so. And I was so happy to finally be doing work for my grandpa and that kind of thing. Um, but there were definitely things that, uh, triggered me in my couple, couple, just couple times later, um, one, one that I just remember standing with my dad there, uh, there's a portion that says, do you swear to be Kings and priests to God? And you say, yeah, whatever. And then, uh, it says, women, we swear to be Queens and priestesses to your husband. And I thought, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's already like, I was 19 or something. I was like, that's not good. Right. You know, that's so, I like always find that fascinating too, because I'm, I'm like a lifelong feminist and I feel like I didn't even notice that. And I'm like, how, I mean, I noticed it, but I didn't, it never really, for some reason, that was like the thing that bothered me that I didn't, I mean, there were other things that bothered me much more. You know what I mean? I don't know why. I'm like, why is that? Keep in mind, I'm like an active temple going, like, true believing Mormon at the time. So it wasn't like, I was like, oh, how dare they not treat women equally? It was more like, oh, wow, that's so confusing to me. I <laughs> have so much more to learn. Um, and 
And then I have to learn the ways. <laughs> yeah. And probably more so like, oh crap, I got to be in charge of the women now. Oh boy, that's going to be even tougher than being in charge of just myself. But uh, <laughs> there was, there was another one too, where it says, do you uh, agree to obey the law of the United Order? Basically it's the law of consecration. And I remember being like, uh oh, I really don't. I do not. So <laughs> at the time, I felt like I was just being stingy. Like I just want all my money for me, and I already have to give ten percent, not all of it. Please no. Don't take my bed. Don't take, <laughs> I like. I love my bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Chris, what remember, about you? What was well, your... just, just on that like consecration notice? A, a quick note. I think. I think at, at the time when I went through um, initially, like. I looked at, I remember like looking around the room and thinking like, well, all these, like all these other people, many of whom I know are like on board with this and they haven't needed to give up all their things or like sacrifice their child or their money or their houses. Like it seems like everyone's just living like normal lives that I expect to have the opportunity to live. So I guess this is a metaphor. Like I remember having that kind of conversation with myself. of like, this is weird. Like this is a weird thing to ask of me, but like, I'm surrounded by people that I know whose lives seem to be somewhat normal. So I must not be joining an actual cult because none of these people have cultish lives. Like it, it like reassured me to look around the room and be like, well, I think I'd be fine. But yeah, anyway, that, I just think that's funny that you mentioned that. Cause um, yeah, it does take you aback. Some of the, some of the wording in there and definitely yeah. the, I think it's interesting how, how like the sexist wording, like the asymmetrical you know, um, men kind of covenanting with God and women covenanting with the men or with their husbands. Um, it's interesting how when you are fully invested, when you're when you're fully kind of like quote unquote orthodox, um, you're, you, it might be shocking, but it's not it's not um, something that you think of as like, oh, this must be false. Like, you know is- what? There was something that bothered me from the beginning, actually. What was that? So you know, the kind of the story of Adam and Eve is recreated and um, it's, it's in video format or live format. Um, But Eve like has, does not speak in the video. Like she has like three lines at the beginning and then throughout the rest of the um, um, recreation. The reenactment. The re- re Recreation. Recreation is a good, like if you capitalize the C, that's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just created a new word. Um, Yeah. Eve isn't addressed. She isn't spoken to. And um, she has nothing. She's not, she doesn't say anything. And I actually, that bothered me like every time. I remember just thinking like, and then they, I know like later on, they actually redid the videos, like re-recorded them. And I was so, I was really hoping that they would include her more and have more of a role for her. Yeah. Um, I did like how they portray her as somebody who she was actually partaking of the forbidden fruit because she knew or she felt that it was a good decision. It was, it was a good decision. She knew they couldn't stay there forever. She wanted to have a family, you know? So I liked that aspect. Like they make her look like a very smart, you know, person making a a decision based on logic. And, um, but, but then she doesn't say anything for the rest of the whole (laughs) recreation. (laughs) I remember later, later in my life when I was getting more into like film studies and stuff, which is what I'm doing my my master's in now. Like I, I remember analyzing like the different filmic 
uh, presentations of that story. And, and just to clarify for any of our listeners who are totally lost right now, like there's, <laughs> there's a bit of a reenactment or, or like a retelling of the biblical story of the creation and of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden. And it's part of this interactive ritualistic ceremony where, you, where the audience, the congregation kind of goes through certain rituals and agreements, um, but it's all presented in this frame of like a story being told to you. And part of that might be video or live reenactments. Anyway, like one of the videos, um, there's, you know, they're depicting that scene where Satan, uh, the serpent, um, just like in the Bible, is tempting Eve to like partake of the fruit of the forbidden, you know, the forbidden tree. And one of the videos has um, what's called a jump cut, which is like where the camera like doesn't necessarily move a lot, but there's um, an implied jump in time because uh, things seem to have moved in the frame. You know, like people are in a slightly different like blocking position or the, or maybe the angle has moved slightly, but it- Nerd it alert. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like forward in time. And that changes, all nerd. <laughs> it changes everything. It changes everything because with the other presentations, it looks like this very brief conversation where like the serpent is like, you should try this fruit. No, I don't want to try the fruit. No, come on, it'll be really great. Okay, I guess I have to. And it like looks like this thoughtless, like kind of silly decision to make or this silly thing to be convinced of so quickly. But in that one version where they do these kind of cuts, um, the editing implies that uh, Eve and Satan are having a very lengthy conversation. Oh, that's interesting. Like slight pieces. That's what it feels like. That's what the editing implies. And uh, I that, that actually really is nice. very interesting to me because I like I wouldn't have even noticed that honestly. Like not being well-versed in film or editing or anything. Good thing he's a nerd then, huh? Give him all that grief. I love nerds. They have lots of information. (laughs) Well, if you guys aren't ardent readers of my Fun Fact Friday post, then this will be new to you. I I post fun facts about church history often. And um, one of them is about those temple videos. And um, the the reason they had to re-record them when Michelle was initially talking about was because their copyright with Disney was expired. And they had to hurry oh, and, and remake it. And then they ran into another issue uh, in which one of the main characters ended up becoming homosexual in the in real life, the actor. Oh, so really? They, so then they made multiple oh, versions. No. And my assumption is that there are multiple versions. So if anybody else uh, decides to publicize their sexual orientation, that they can just get rid of that one and still have... Backups? <laughs> yeah, backups. That's to wow. Yeah. That's so, amazing. I thought they actually made different versions because one of them's like super slow and they did it for in interpreting like in so the be middle. easier to translate into other languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that that was one of the reasons. Yeah. That's totally an assumption know. on my part. Uh, <laughs> but it also could be like, we're making four of these. So let's make some for this reason, some for this reason too. I um, just going back to our discussion of like these, these deep, like kind of spiritual moments that you guys had in the temple, either positive or negative, you know, or is like traumatizing, overwhelming, but positive or like, I, I just think it's interesting that all three of us had like, cause, cause my, one of my first like formative, um, at least in my adult life, this formative, like personal spiritual experiences was also in the temple where I, it was um, during my stay at the, at the missionary training center, the MTC in um, Provo. And I remember having this one, moment where I was just like super overwhelmed. Two of my companions already had gone home early for like stress, which is like kind of extraordinary given that I was only in the training center for like a matter of short weeks. You know, it wasn't like I was there for months, like some missionaries are. Um, 
and I had already lost two companions. It felt like I was like plunging into something much more uh, difficult than I had anticipated. And I was also just feeling a lot of stress about whether, um, whether I knew that the claims I was going to be making to all these strangers were true, you know? And I don't think I would have said it that way. I don't think I would have articulated it as explicitly doubt, you know? Um, but there was doubt and it was starting to nag at me. And I remember like feeling like this mixture of doubt and overwhelmedness and stress and just, you know, nervous and sitting in the temple and, you know, at the end of this, this kind of um, presentation slash ceremony that we've described, uh, there's, there's this like kind of room where you get to um, sit and kind of meditate, you know, and there's no, there's no uh, pre-planned program for that room. It's just, you sit there and it's called the celestial room and you just get to be quiet and like ponder and pray and read scriptures and do whatever you want to do. And it's supposed to be a representation of like entering heaven, entering the peace of the Lord's presence or whatever. Um, but I remember sitting in that room and just like praying my heart out, like asking like, what the hell is going on? Is this where, I, is this where <laughs> I'm supposed to Did you really say hell? Did you no, really say hell? This is, a, this is like a, a translation. Um, <laughs> like, what's going on? Like, is this where I'm supposed to be? And I got this overwhelming, like, warm, uh, like, reassuring feeling. And, and like, I still stand by, like, even though now I'm, I'm like, not a practicing member of the church and I'm, and I'm more agnostic, um, I still believe that, like, if there is some divine force out there, then that, connection with it was something you know was and it? i because yeah. i don't think that like the whatever i was feeling wasn't like in words and it wasn't in it, there was no voice telling me like yes the mormon church is true and, and you need to be a missionary for the mormon church there was nothing that, that was like institution specific like of that feeling and i remember it pretty vividly and i can say that that's not me just um projecting my biases of today onto yesterday you know like it's just this it was a very vague feeling of like, hey, you are loved and just keep doing what you're doing. And like since then, in the you know decade that I've experienced since then, all of like 100% of the quote unquote spiritual experiences that I feel I've had have been like that, have been very vague, have never been specific to any one institution or any one like set of rules. It's always just been this like reassurance from the universe that I am loved and that I that I'm on the right path or that I am on a path that is okay, you know. If even if there is no right path, like just this kind of reassurance of like, hey, it's cool, keep up, keep doing what you're doing, and uh, know that you're going to be okay. Which so I think even like even when you were on your mission preaching the gospel or like you know Mormon philosophy, Mormon teachings, yeah. you didn't feel like those feelings were specific to the Mormon church? Well, I think I still had that kind of zealotry that I had when I, that I described from my high school years of like this, I'm defending the faith. Um, and yeah, I would say, I would say that like the way I framed it then when I was a missionary was a lot more fundamentalist and like zealous than, than I would frame it now. Like I still had some of that energy of like a defender of the faith that I had as a teenager when I was a missionary. But I think it, like subconsciously, I understood that like the God who spoke to me wasn't as concerned about the rules. And I had more and more experiences uh, that kind of reaffirmed that or tried to, it was like the universe was trying to remind me of that vagueness throughout my mission. Like there was um, like some of the most powerful, memorable moments of my mission are like, 
kind of negative, confusing moments, you know, moments of like kind of postmodern religion, you know, where like one example is in my first area, I remember my trainer, um, we were, we were biking around and my trainer was like, all right, let's try an exercise. Neither of us know this area because we're both, we both got transferred into this area. Um, I want you to bike in front, even though I'm the trainer. And I want you to just like go, like we don't have any more appointments for the day. So just go wherever the spirit um, inspires you to go, you know, turn Leave left when you me, guide me. Right yeah, exactly. Me. <laughs> very primary song, very like kind of uh, glorified, like, you know, iconic kind of moment that I think we had both heard about or read about. In, in and and where did you serve your mission? I was in Northern California in Roseville. And so he was like, yeah, just like, let the spirit guide you. Just follow promptings. This would be a good, like, practice moment for, you know, just get in touch with that side of your of your spirit or whatever. And I remember, like, biking in front of him and just getting nothing. Like, <laughs> radio silence from God and being like, what is going on? Like, I'm supposed to be, like, a knight in shining armor for, for California. I'm supposed to save California's soul, you know? I had this, like, hubris of, like, I am a missionary. I am ordained to be the guy who, like, knows exactly where to go and how to save the kitten and like get the kid baptized who needs to hear the right thing at the right moment and like storm into the castle, you know, and, and all of that was shattered. Like this is like day, maybe not day one, but this is like week one. This is like right at the beginning. Um, It was this, it felt like an hour. It was probably 10 minutes uh, at most, but it felt like an hour of just wandering and feeling like totally lost and wondering like, is that because I'm a sinner? Is it because I don't belong here? Is it because uh, my trainer is a sinner and he wasn't supposed to like give me that task? <laughs> is it because neither of us are sinners and there's no God? Like I just had like all these like questions in my head of like, what was that? Like, yeah. how come God didn't have my back? You know, and I, I wrestled with that experience for the rest of my mission. And for years after that, I remained a believer, but still like held that experience close to my heart. Like that experience taught me a lot I think about um more mature ways of thinking about God not as the Santa Claus who just gives you something whenever you ask but like as this being who's not necessarily interested in being manipulated that way as as you know more of this like um will of the universe kind of thing you know there's there's a lot more of like vague spirituality that I started to lean towards after that experience and so anyway that's a long recap of that but like I kept having moments like that during throughout my mission where I felt like okay, this is, this is, you know, the divine is trying to teach me something and it's totally different than what I thought I was going to be taught. Or um, I'm getting this feeling that's like negative when I thought it would be positive or it's empty when I thought it would be full or, you know, whatever. Um, or I feel like I'm being chastised when I thought that what I was doing was defending the faith and what I was really doing was just being like presumptuous or prideful, you know? And so I feel like my mission was a great experience for me to learn how to not be who I was as, as a teenager. <laughs> That's so funny because I was like the complete opposite. It oh, was yeah? like, it was like, <laughs> you, I were, entered, you became radicalized. On your oh mission? my gosh. I entered the MTC and it was like, I didn't know I was high strung. I didn't know that I like was super anxiety ridden or whatever, but whatever happened, like when I got into the MTC, I, well, I've always been a rule follower, you know? And so put me in a situation where there's a lot of rules and you're only blessed if you follow those rules. And I was like, if I we, wish I could have met Michelle from back then. Oh my gosh. My poor companion. Sometimes I like, if we left five minutes late, I would like have a heart attack. If we like got home five minutes late, I would like, Oh, oh my wow. gosh, we are not being blessed. We are not going to, 
God is not going to lead us to that family that needs to be back. You know, like I, but also on my mission is when I really came to believe in the church. And, uh, cause when I started my mission, I, I, so I had met this guy right before I left on my mission, this man that I worked with, and he was somebody that had talked to me about historical issues with the church. Yeah. And I had never heard any of it. And it was very disturbing to me. I was leaving on my mission in three weeks. I wasn't not going to go on a mission. I went to Spain. Part of going on a mission is like the adventure of it all. I wasn't not going to experience that. So, you know, I went out on the on my mission and had a really hard time not knowing if Joseph Smith was a prophet. And, um, you know, I just kind of, in reading Doctrine and Covenants, I just kind of had this feeling come over me that was like, you know, it's going to be okay. Joseph Smith made a lot of mistakes, but that doesn't mean he wasn't called of God. And that doesn't mean that, you know, God just kind of lets things happen. He just, he kind of lets us learn from our mistakes. And honestly, it was because of that experience that I probably stayed in the church for as long as I did. Mm. And because I was so nuanced, like, because I became nuanced in that moment, I was like, yeah, like God lets us make mistakes. All of these changes in the church, it's just because God's letting us make mistakes and learn from our mistakes and da, 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 you know, like polygamy and blacks in the priesthood. And, um, so, so Joseph Smith and his polygamy were just people making mistakes, but you leaving five minutes late was unacceptable. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know it's like not logical, but I think anytime <laughs> you get religion or like feelings, emotions involved, you lose a lot of logic, you know? So so yeah, I my mission turned me into like stalwart. I was, I mean, there was nothing that was easy going about that situation huh. for me. You were hardcore. I and I worked really hard and I I loved my mission, but it was really hard. And when I I mean it was in Spain, so Europe is not, you know, the most friendly of places for religious people trying to preach their religion. And, uh, I remember getting home and being like, I loved my mission, but I'm so glad to be home. Like it just, it was really hard. Um, I loved Spain. I loved the people. I am forever grateful for that experience. I wouldn't take it back ever. I, I speak another language. I, you know, I just had this amazing adventure in another country that I love and, um, yeah, I'm grateful for it to this day. Cool. Good. So what did you guys, okay, so what happened kind of with, you know, we've talked about where we were as, you know, as we've like developed our own spirituality. So kind of how did everyone start transitioning away from maybe the fundamentalist or not fundamentalist, but um, what's the word I'm trying More to think orthodox of? Or... Orthodox Mormonism. Yeah. yeah like how did people, I mean, because obviously none of us are Orthodox Mormon now. We've all kind of gone through faith transitions, faith crises of some kind. So what kind of led you to where you are now? I, I actually um, went more Orthodox first. So I told you my uncle got excommunicated um, because he of his scholarly work. And that really hurt me. Um, Doctrines like um, don't learn from the wisdom of man, learn from the wisdom of God really confused me. And then um, 
I learned that Eve didn't eat the forbidden fruit. She ate the fruit of the, no, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that really affected me because I was like, wait, so she gained knowledge and punished all of mankind for it. Okay. Then I went on a mission, which I think was equally as traumatic as your guys's, but infinitely shorter, not infinitely, but I only went for like four days. <clears throat> so I came home and that experience just broke me as a Mormon. Like I just felt like the things that I thought were important, like knowledge and faith and wisdom were just not important, but duty and missionary work and action were all the important things to go. Mm. So coming home from my mission, I was just so broken. And I started just diving into research. And I found things like, um, in the Bible dictionary, it talks about um, knowledge is an attribute of God, and no one will enter the kingdom of God without wisdom. Um, Joseph Smith said that knowledge is a powerful tool, and you better gain as much as you can, because the evil spirits will have a lot, and they'll overcome you if you don't. Um, so I started learning, I started really absorbing quotes and stuff like that, that really just planted me in this new order Mormonism where now <laughs> I was just like gung ho, like, okay, I didn't understand it before, but now I understand it. And now I'm out talking to all my friends. And, I and was this just was after you, so this was after you came home from your mission early, you became like even more orthodox. Going to the temple once a week. Wow. Um, I remember though, I was still learning as much as I could and, but I was just internalizing it differently. And I remember, um, one of my good friends left on his mission exactly one year after I left on mine. And I took him to Hooters for like his night before he got uh, set apart, you know, more than rebel. So we go there and we're talking and, and church history came up and I told him I wouldn't discuss it with him. And I remember he still brings that up to this day saying like, I'm so grateful you didn't bring anything up to me or he probably would have had an experience like you on your mission where he would have been out there. Oh, I don't know if this is true or not, but I just, my eyes out. (laughs) I refuse to even engage with him on it. And he still brings that up. And, but that just goes to show like from that one year period, I had gone from like a broken man to true believing power, powerful stuff. And so it was from then that I, um, I just started learning more and more and more about church history. And I just, I just kept realizing like the church in general doesn't, isn't okay with the interpretations that I was coming up with. Like we can all say that Joseph Smith took on 30 plus wives. Um, But how I was interpreting that was just ever so slightly wedging me apart. And over the decades since it's been of me doing that, now I find myself, like Hinckley says, with a train track switch of one inch, you know, leads you completely stays See? apart. He was inspired. Well, what yeah. was the interpretive difference in your take on the on Joseph's polygamy versus like the church's official take? So it would it would depend on the I and I was just using that as an example, but it would depend on like how far I was from the church at the time, what how I'd interpret it, but in that instance, I would have just said, like Michelle said before, oh, well, men make mistakes and the church isn't about men. It's about God. So th- let them make mistakes. Yeah. Um, but, but that in and of itself is kind of different than the church interpretation, right? Like they don't say that it was a mistake. So it's like we, like I remember one time I was with my aunt and uh, we were boating and there were some family friends there and 
a family friend was like, oh yeah, my professor at BYU said that he thinks polygamy was probably the one thing, one of the things that Joseph Smith wasn't inspired about. And she was like, what? Like that just, you know, it wasn't, for most members, it wasn't a mistake. It just... Yeah, I think most members would say it's on it's their shelf. That, that polygamy is is difficult to deal with or to reckon with mm-hmm. or to think about, but that it must have been inspired just for reasons that we can't fathom or understand. Yeah, and and the frustration I run into oftentimes is like, I'll have read, you know, 10 or 15 diaries of the women that he married and how traumatizing it was for them or um, how they were already happily married before and that just threw a wrench in their whole eternal plan and all this stuff. and. Yeah. Then I bump into people that I don't want to make stereotypes, but like probably haven't read anything on polygamy, but they just know their prophet was inspired. And so I'm between a rock and a hard place. Like, do I, do I continue confronting the issue of, no, you just don't understand this. Um, I'm not trying to tear apart your faith, but I really hate it when you um, dehumanize these poor women that, you know, are likely related to you somehow. If you're, if you're Mormon. Yeah. Um, so to just wrap mine up really quick then, where I'm at now is um, I'm still transitioning. I still consider myself transitioning. And um, I don't really accept anyone's definition of God. Uh, I don't think anybody can know know what that is. I, I still hope for it. But at this point, I, 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 that's all I can do is hope. And I don't accept any other definition as of yet. And do you still go to church? Uh, so so rarely. I, I still say that I do, but as of right now, it's probably been like four or five months. But I, I feel like you did behind those uh, dividers with your friend. Like I just go and I it's home. There's just no place like home. I just, I love the music. Um, I really don't like a lot of talks that are given almost every single one <laughs> nowadays, but, but I really like the, the atmosphere I just do. It's like familiar. Yeah. I like the bricks and the carpet and I just like it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Chris, what kind of led you to where you are now? Uh, Well, it was a mixture of things. I mean, kind of like what Blake said a moment ago, it was a, it's been a slow process. And so it's hard to pin down whether um, disaffection or like, or like disillusionment with the institution came first or maybe doctrinal differences or spiritual, uh, you know, rough feelings or, or, um, you know, issues with, with church history. Like all of these things kind of came in pieces, uh, in waves, uh, feeding off of each other. Uh, But some of the big moments for me were like in 2014, I believe, um, there were a series of excommunications. Um, so kind of like what Blake mentioned in the nineties, but this was later with a few other like Mormon intellectuals and um, scholars and activists and storytellers. So one of them is, is the guy running this foundation under which this uh, podcast exists, John DeLynn. Uh, he was excommunicated. I didn't know a ton about his work, but I read up on some of the stuff he was saying and I really liked a lot of it. Um, Rock Waterman was writing a blog that I was reading all the time. Um, and he's, for lack of a better term, kind of like a neo-fundamentalist Mormon, where he believed that uh, the Mormon church needed to return to some of its roots, some of the things that Joseph Smith got right that maybe have been abandoned in the decades since, centuries since. And um, I loved his insights, and he was very well-versed in the scriptures. He was excommunicated around the same time as John. And at the same time, uh, a woman named Kate Kelly, who was an activist, um, kind of 
advocating for female ordination in the Mormon church was also excommunicated. And I actually have met Kate Kelly. I really like her work. I think she does important stuff. And so all three of those being threatened with excommunication at the, at the same time was a huge kind of like, um, straw on the camel's back for me. And then a year later, uh, the church released this new policy, um, in 2015, that said that like children of same sex marriages couldn't be baptized until they turned 18 and disavowed their parents' lifestyles, um, which I thought was a really abusive policy. It's literally like um, in violation of what Jesus said in the new Testament, when he said, don't like, don't forbid any child from coming unto me if they want to, if they want to come to me. So I felt like um, increasingly over time, you know, 2016 more scandals happened 2017. Like as it seems like over the past 10 years, there's been this like precipitous, rise of problems uh, with the institution of the church acting in a way that I felt was spiritually abusive or violent um, and doing things that I, that I could see harming the people around me. And that was probably the biggest thing. Of course, I have doctrinal issues. There's some things that I stopped believing in or that I started questioning or that I was frustrated with because when I tried to introduce more nuanced views about some doctrinal or cultural things, I was shut down. Um, in public or in private conversations with Mormons or with Mormon hierarchy, um, local hierarchy. There's issues like that, of course. There's issues with the history. There's issues with the culture. But I think the biggest one for me really was the way that the church as an institution acted and the way that it hurt people and the way that it seemed very uninterested in repenting of its own sins. And, you know, as an institution that um, tries to teach people to repent and teach people to acknowledge their shortcomings. I thought it was really uh, difficult to watch this institution just kind of steamroll over people's lives and not apologize. And, and even explicitly say, I forget which apostle it was. Oh, um, we do not apologize. Dallin, yeah. Dallin Oaks. He, he explicitly said like, yeah, we don't have anything to apologize for. And um, Jeffrey Holland has said similar things. A lot of them have said similar things and it really rubs me the wrong way. Uh, so that, that, that's probably the biggest ingredient of like my growing disaffection and where I would call myself now, I would say like I'm a non-practicing universalist, humanist, progressive, agnostic Mormon. <laughs> like I'm still Mormon, but after all of those other adjectives are added on there, you know, I'm. That's an I'm, official term. Look it up, everybody. That's, that's my official term. I'm non-practicing because I don't really do the stuff anymore and I don't attend and I don't believe in a lot of the practices or, or behavioral rules and stuff. Um, I'm a universalist because I think that everyone's going to get grace from whatever universal existence there is. And I'm a humanist because I believe in humans more than I care about theology or God. Uh, and I'm progressive agnostic Mormon because I think that um, <laughs> I think the institution needs to progress. And I, and I think that no, none of us can know for sure um, with certainty, you know, what God is or isn't or who he approves of or doesn't approve of. But I, I hope that uh, I hope to do my best. So that's that's the kind of Mormon that I am, which a lot of Mormons would say that's no Mormon at all. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's the kind of Mormonism that I... It's that still I your roots. Yeah, I still I don't know. It's my, it's my language. It's who I am. Excommunications really affect me too, even outside looking in now. Um, but even from an insider port point of view, that's so um, like psychologically uh, draining. Because I mean, if you're a true believing Mormon, excommunication literally means like, just go to hell and leave us alone. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And at the time when those were happening, I was still like pretty orthodox in my beliefs. I still, I still believed in the sanctity of ritual and in, you know, and that means the, the act of undoing those rituals or of proclaiming those rituals as dead 
is like you said, that's basically a, a death sentence, an eternal death sentence. And that's, I don't really. Uh, Even though I had made it a little further out by then, I remember Jeremy Runnels, he was excommunicated around the same time. And he's, oh, that's right. Yeah. He's, he's been really invaluable to me uh, personally. He recorded his excommunication. I watched it. And it was one of the most heartbreaking things I've seen. Uh, yeah. And, and I've seen a lot of heartbreaking things in church history. So, you know, it's interesting because when Kate Kelly, I didn't, I actually had no idea who John Dolan was when he was excommunicated. Um, but Kate Kelly, um, she served in my same mission and she left the day that I entered. Oh, and wow. Then, and she actually came back for a visit to Spain like a month later. And I was in the area she had just left. So I met her there. Um, when she was excommunicated, I was kind of in the middle of my faith crisis. Um, it was ironically me being the rule follower that I am. It was the rules that started to really get to me. I, I started to feel like I didn't understand the purpose of all these rules. I didn't understand like the extreme strictness and, um, it, I really started to question everything. And then Kate Kelly was excommunicated and that really bothered me. And, um, and then just over the course of like two or three years, I, I started really researching more of the history. And, um, I eventually came to the conclusion that I, I felt that, um, the church was a man-made institution and that all religions were. And I also really lost my belief in God pretty quickly. I think my belief in God was so closely tied to my religion that I couldn't, I, I, I kind of lost it all. And since then, it's been something I've, that I've wrestled with trying to figure out, you know, or trying to come to terms with the fact that maybe there's not an afterlife and that I actually don't, I would say I probably lean atheist, definitely secular humanist. Um, and that's been hard. And I, at the same time, Chris, what you were talking about earlier, those feelings you felt, I do feel like there's something out there. There's something that connects us all. And whether that's just energy or like the force of the universe, I don't know. But what I do know is I felt really powerful feelings and things like, pure knowledge dropping into my head, you know, and, mm. um, you know, I, I know that there's some kind of connection. There's something connecting us. I don't know what it is. I almost, I just kind of believe that there's an energy. I mean, we're all made of energy. I mean, there's scientific evidence that shows our thoughts can affect the, the physical universe. I mean, they can affect us physically. They can affect other people, you know, like, yeah, there's just, there's something that connects us all. And I believe more in the scientific view of it being the energy of the universe. We're all created of energy. We, our thoughts can be measured. We can affect things around us. And so that's kind of where I am now just, and I feel a lot of peace actually. I, you know, sometimes I have a heart attack when I think of dying and fading into oblivion. But for the most part, I've been so much happier since I left the church. And um, I'm in, I feel like I'm in a good place. Do you guys feel like you're in a good place right now? That's a double-sided coin for me. Um, <laughs> I 
so I, I kind of spitballed through my, my transition out, and I just want to touch on a couple points. Um, number one, I, I met this institute teacher who I'm friends with to this day. We've been friends for 12 years now, or 10, anyway. Um, he's been really influential. He still teaches institute to this day, um, but he, he just teaches it in a nuanced, very truthful, honest way. And I was his TA for a minute going to um, Mountain Meadows. We taught a class called Mountain Meadows for like three different semesters. I went down there. We camped there and talked about it. And so that was really influential with, with me. And um, so, so learning all that history is, is really what kind of guided me to make my transition out. And I kind of lost my train of thought a little bit. Um, but I wanted to touch on um, excommunication just a little bit more because I can hear some of the viewers saying like, well, these, these people were so against the church, they deserved it in a way. Um, and I just want to point out that excommunication like uh, is just such a heartbreaking process for even like true believing members. Um, I just can't imagine a Christ that would go around being like, well, everybody that agrees with me on this side, everybody else, I don't care where you go, but you can't come here, you know. It just it sounds so unchristian to me. Um, but uh, did that kind of affect you in your faith transition? Like, did those excommunications, because you said it's been like super slow process when those excommunications happened. Was that kind of like, Chris, a little bit of a nail in the coffin or oh, were yeah. you already kind of far gone by then? I was a little far gone by then. Um, I was going to address the nail in my coffin too. Um, so those excommunications, I was, I was, still really hoping for like change in, on an in institutional level. So I was really just hoping like maybe John wouldn't get excommunicated. Maybe Kate wouldn't get excommunicated. Um, maybe the church is progressing towards this different. I don't want to, I, I don't know. I was just hoping basically. Yeah. Um, the nail in the coffin for me was uh, dating post post Mormon, I guess, post LDS. Um, I, I've had virtually every single girl I've dated uh, tell me I'm not worthy enough or I'm not Mormon enough or, and, uh, usually I don't care too much, but one gal I just fell head over heels with and, uh, we were getting pretty serious. And she finally just said, you know, I've, I've got kind of a choice to make either you or the, the family life that I had envisioned growing up in the church. And I just, I choose the church and that was that. And that was the nail in my coffin where if the institution just doesn't, um, doesn't view me as as a child of God, then uh, how do I reconcile that? And that was probably the first instance in my progression that I said, okay, I, I'm just not LDS anymore. Um, mm. So what, so what would you say you are now? Where are you at? People always ask me what, if I'm Mormon still. And I always say like, heck yes, I am. Like I just, <laughs> people are like, well, you're not really, if you think the way you do. And I'm like, okay, well that's your definition, I guess. But Mormonism so ingrained in me. Like I have scriptures memorized. I have hymns memorized. I say things like excommunication just in a podcast that. <laughs> <laughs> As though everyone knows what that means. <laughs> exactly. So um, here I am off of a job interview wearing a white shirt and a tie from my true believing day. Like I'm just so Mormon. I love green jello and funeral potatoes. So here, <laughs> here. Still playing my Mormonism. <laughs> almost all my family and friends are Mormon and some of the doctrines I just love, like love one another. Um, that's that stuff still resonates with me. The scouting program, even though recently it's changed a lot, um, was really influential in my upbringing. And, uh, yeah, so I love it. I love every second of it. I claim it. Um, but I would probably 
place a, a bunch of adjectives in front of mine too. Secular humanism, <laughs> I really resonate with. Um, progressive, agnostic, atheist. You, you guys can pick as we go along and you get to know me better, but uh, Mormon for sure. Well, and it will evolve. And I think that's, that's the thing that, you know, hopefully we'll see in this podcast as we, as we go on, you know, we're going to continue to talk about where we're at and, um, and our beliefs. And I think they're always evolving. And that's, what's great about kind of this post-religious life is we have this opportunity to figure out for ourselves where we're at. And we hope that all of our listeners also, um, you know, are, are working through that too and figuring it out and open to new ideas. And we're really excited for this podcast because in the future we have um, a lot of things we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about sexuality. We're going to be talking about to people of other faiths um, who have gone through a faith crisis similar to ours. We're going to be talking to people who have gone through, um, you know, Mormon faith crises, and we're going to be talking to people about the history of, of the church and of religion and Christianity and um, just a lot of exciting things coming up that we're excited to share with everybody. And um, we'd love to hear from you. So any ideas, comments, or feedback, please email podcast at gmail.com. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Let's go in the garden. You'll find something waiting right there where you left it lying upside down. On the Other Side was a production of the Open Stories Foundation between July 19th and October 25th of 2018. The underside is lighter when you turn it around. Everything intro and outro theme for this podcast is Everything Stays, a Rebecca Sugar cover by Bly Wallentine. You can find more of Bly's music at blywallentine.com. Everything stays.